So I politely knocked on the door and requested an interview and they decided to interview me even though it wasn't hiring season. Uh, I did really well in the intelligence test because they had a calculator in the room so the maths questions became very easy. <laughs> but I figured it was a test of initiative, like if I didn't use the calculator, would I fail? Was I an idiot? <laughs> Welcome to episode 5 of Underrated. This one is really special to me because I actually interview my parents, entrepreneurs Sharon and Adrian Stone about their adventures in business, what it was like to be an entrepreneur in the 90s and beyond, and how important it is to take risks, and how and when and why to take them. I find it absolutely fascinating because obviously I am their child, uh, along with my sister Talia, and I just find it really interesting as to how and why I am an entrepreneur and where that came from, and what inspired me to actually go out and create in this world. So I really hope you'll enjoy listening to this episode. Before we jump right in, just a quick ad break for my own underrated company. This podcast has been brought to you and edited and produced by Speedlancer.com. Speedlancer assembles curated teams of freelancers for your various needs, such as content, design, and podcasting teams. Rather than having to hire and manage an individual freelancer, with Speedlancer, you get the best of a pre-assembled team. Contact us today and simply mention Underrated for a special 15% off podcast deal. It's not easy to interview your parents. No. <laughs> that should be your opening line. That is. <laughs> um, so we're sitting here in San Diego. You're both visiting me from Australia. The last episode of the Underrated podcast, which I think is fitting because I think you're both very underrated as parents. <laughs> Is that a compliment? I haven't figured that it's one out. It's great. I can, I can do backhanded insults and nobody recognises it. It works for me. <laughs> so other than being my parents, you've also, well, because you're my parents, I guess, you've inspired me in a lot of ways in terms of my entrepreneurial career. I always grew up around dad talking about business and mum doing lots of exciting career things. <laughs> Thanks. You're looking at me funny. Um, so I'm sure that guided where I am today and where I strive to be. But I want to talk about your career journeys and what you do and your priorities and how you impact other people because I think that you've added, both of you have added a lot of value within the startup scene in Melbourne as well as um, angel investors and impact kind of people. So yeah. What are your career stories? Mum, you can go first. Um, Sharon Stone, everyone. Clap, hi, clap, clap, the clap, famous clap. <laughs> <laughs> um, Okay, so I started life as a chemistry, maths and science teacher, which I really enjoyed. And what did I, you study for that? Uh, Bachelor of Science, majoring in biochemistry. And then a dip ed. Was that always, what, which one did you want to do out of school? I didn't know what I wanted to do out of school. Okay. I knew I enjoyed the sciences, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. Okay. So this seemed like a natural fit because I was guaranteed a job, I needed to work, there was a shortage of science teachers. So. Was it unusual for a woman to want to do science? Uh, probably, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but not that unusual. Um, anyway, so I was teaching for about four years and this was in the 80s and my students knew more about computers than I did and I felt really um, out of touch with it. So I enrolled in a postgraduate Diploma in computing and learned uh, programming and uh, project management and changed careers into IT and worked in programming and uh, worked my way through until I became project manager. Um, At which company? Telstra. And then we were outsourced to EDS and worked in the billing department. What sort of programming did you do? I started out doing COBOL and DB2, um, SQL. It sounds very archaic. But I think there's still a shortage of COBOL programmers. You'd probably get a multi-million dollar job if you wanted to. Probably, because uh, a lot of the big systems still operate on COBOL. Mm. Um, and then we moved to the States, so I... Hold on, why, why did you stop being a chemistry teacher and why did you want to make a career move? And why programming? Um, well, that's a good question. I think in my first year of teaching, I put in a lot of effort and I absolutely loved it. And after four years, I could already see that the energy and enthusiasm was not as great. And I, I thought, well, that's not fair to the kids. It's not fair to me. I can't imagine doing this for another 15, 20 years. 
So for me, it was better to opt out. So you're 25 or something? Uh, when I started my uh, postgraduate, yes. Um, and then graduated at 27, I think, and got a job straight away and, and started working in IT. Hmm. Boy, we were young then. Yeah. <laughs> when, well, how old were you when you met? 26. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Which would make me like 31. Something like that. Yeah, wrong side of 30. <laughs> yeah. And what were some of the pros and cons of your programming career in the in the 90s or whatever? Oh, well, I think 80s. Pros and cons. I just enjoyed it. I, I couldn't tell you pros and cons. I really enjoyed it and I enjoyed the opportunity for my career to grow in a, in a large corporation. I uh, had a lot of training, had worked with great teams. Um, and it was a good marriage of uh, my skill set because being a teacher, I feel like I had good people skills. Mm. And having a science background helped as well. So I really enjoyed the teamwork. And yeah, I, I just really loved it. And you were programming as a project manager? No, started as a programmer, okay. then um, analyst programmer, analyst team leader, eventually became a project manager. Gotcha. Yeah. And you were doing that after I was born? Yes, but then I went part time and um, job sh did job sharing. And at the time, there was not a lot of that available. Mm. So I, I was lucky enough to push for that opportunity and succeed. Mm. Yeah. Not even lucky, you pushed for it yeah. and succeeded. Oh, well, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And what was Dad doing at the time? Or, Dad, what was your career? Uh, high school. Yeah. I wanted to be a research scientist, so I ended up working my cousin's law firm because then I decided I want to be a lawyer. And then after doing that... I didn't I even know that. Yeah. <laughs> I did half a law degree. Yeah. And then <laughs> I decided, no, I don't want to be a lawyer. A lot of reading involves, so I went back to doing sciences and ended up at uni doing first year engineering because uh, uh, my, my high school marks weren't as good as I would have hoped, mainly because I was very lazy and didn't put much effort in. And so I got into engineering first year, but I didn't do the right maths. So I ended up failing first year engineering and switched to computer science. And you wanted to be a pilot or something? Was that a short term thing? Oh, no, no, I definitely wanted to, you're right, I forgot, I wanted to join the Air Force. Uh, and they did as an engineer and pilot. And they had a higher maths requirement than the same course at the same university without joining the Air Force. So, and I think that and plus I couldn't reach the pedals were the major reasons why I didn't become a pilot. <laughs> they told you it was because of the maths, but they didn't want to insult your height. <laughs> exactly. Five foot four, 164 centimetres or something. Okay. I could fly in the small, the small aircraft, I suppose. <laughs> I could fly in the drones. There weren't any in those days. Oh yeah, good point. So anyway, so I ended up switching from engineering to uh, computer science. I also, uh, my main thing that I didn't have was the maths, so I decided to challenge myself and redo the maths anyway and passed. And in second year science, I also did second year maths because I figured I had two goes at getting it right, so this time I would prove I could do that level of maths. And I passed that, so then I dropped maths because I proved I could do it. So I think I'm the sort of person who likes to self, you know, be self-challenging. Oh, thanks. That's where I get it from. Yeah. <laughs> And definitely is the reason why we do this entrepreneurial shit. Mm -hmm. I also did meteorology because that was the easiest second subject uh, to do and you had to do a second subject. So I guess I'm a qualified computer scientist who's never programmed and a qualified meteorologist who's never read a weather forecast <laughs> or forecast the weather. You didn't meet doing computer science, obviously. No. <laughs> no, 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 because I've already been working for IBM for 10 years almost when we met. Yeah. Wait, so you did computer science yeah, straight out of school yeah. and then you jumped into, was IBM your first job? Yeah, in fact I was working part-time for a chain called Tandy Electronics in those days who are now defunct, they sold electrical stuff. Bit like were they Radio Shack? In America they were Radio Shack, in Australia they were Tandy. Oh, okay. Uh, they went under globally, uh, but I thought that I would become a store manager there, uh, spend a year earning money and then go traveling for a year before looking for a real job. Uh, but a friend of mine came over just as I graduated, bragging about his brand new car he got from working at IBM. He said I should go apply for a job. He gave me the HR manager's name. How old are you? 20, I just graduated, so 21. Mm -hmm. So I politely knocked on the door and requested an interview and they decided to interview me even though it wasn't 
hiring season. Uh, I did really well in the intelligence test because they had a calculator in the room, so the maths questions became very easy. <laughs> but I figured it was a test of initiative. Like if I didn't use the calculator, would I say that was I an idiot? <laughs> so I found out years later that, that actually this brash young guy came in demanding this interview with his HR manager, and so they thought, well, they better see what I'm like. And that's how I got the job. And you were there for 10, ten years? Nine and a half years. Well, what was that like? It was great. Uh, well, actually, not, not great. So the first six years at IBM was amazing, and I was very entrepreneurial anyway. So I came up with all sorts of new methodologies for doing things in various areas of the company. So one of the things I was responsible for was determining the size of the mainframe that we would need to run IBM's first internal email system. This is before anybody in the world had email. Mm. And nobody knew how email would work. So I did this sort of sizing exercise and came up with this $10 million mainframe, which they bought and installed. And we blew through it in less than six months. Because what we didn't account for was the fact that everybody would be CCing mm. their manager, the other person's manager. So 10 or 20 years before anyone else was using email and CCing everybody, I knew this would be a thing. Hmm. Uh, but after six years, I suddenly got this, I call it an entrepreneurial seizure. And if you read this book called The E-Myth, which I read you know, 20 years later. Michael Gerber. Michael Gerber. 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 <laughs> it's not Gerber, it's a Gerber. Uh, I'm a goofy goober. He talks about this entrepreneurial seizure and he's 100% right. And from that point on, I was actually at the same company. What's, a micro, what's an entrepreneurial seizure? I had this sudden desire to be in my own business, but I had no idea what to so do. So before that, I actually wanted to ask, like, what were each of your career ambitions? Like, what after school or after when you, when mum, you decided to start a computer science degree, where did you see yourself? Or how far in advance did you think? I actually don't know. I, 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 I didn't know what I wanted to do. I, I was one of those typical high school kids who was kind of lost. Mm -hmm. I didn't have an ambition. What about with your computer science and after joining Telstra? Or um, well, then I wanted to project manage. Once I got into a large corporation, I could see where I wanted to head and project manage. So you wanted to be a career woman for a long time? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I really enjoyed that. But I, when I left school, I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? So you were at... Uh, I had vague notions of becoming you know, CEO of IBM one day. Okay. But after a few years at IBM and realising that corporate world is very political mm -hmm. and realising that I'm not the ideal political type to play that game, I sort of readjusted my, my thinking. But I thought, look, I would just become a really senior engineer, consulting engineer at IBM. IBM did a lot of management consulting in those days. It was free. We didn't mm. charge the clients, but I liked that. And I was very good at it. And I could see myself just becoming the, probably the most senior consulting engineer they had. I thought, you know, it was like, IBM was like working for Google or Facebook, that culture in those days. So I, I, I couldn't imagine myself working for another corporate because the culture was just so good. So I really had, I think once I gave up my CEO ambition, I don't think I had a real ambition after that. And was it in Melbourne or Sydney? Melbourne. But we travelled to Sydney a lot. Ah, uh, okay. Spent a lot of time in Sydney. So at the same time as you being in IBM, your dad had a business. Yeah, so my dad was the typical salesman, small business person going from business to business to business and always failing. Or going from a job and then leaving it and then going to another one. So he wasn't hugely successful, you know, as I was growing up in those terms. And this really had a huge bearing on my life and my whole outlook on life and taught me responsibility from an early, early age. So. We lived in a very middle, what seemed like a very middle class home, but the reality was that my father was actually one step ahead of being broke and used to go to his mother-in-law asking for loans all the time, which must have been really difficult for both of them. But I knew that was going on, I saw that. And the rest of your family didn't? No, he hid it from, well, not so much my mother, I think she knew, but he certainly hid it from my sisters. Mm. So from a very early age, I did what every other responsible human being on the planet does, is I went out and got a job and I never held that in my hand. I, I bought all my own clothes, bought my own food, except when I was having dinner at home, bought my own cars, did all the things that, that you would expect and that taught me a lot of responsibility. Mm. Interesting. And so your dad had this business, which was the factoring company, and that well, was at the same time as you being in IBM. So what, I'm trying to figure out what happened after that and how you ended up, like the next step in your career journey was to leave IBM 
Yeah. So, yeah. So, my, so my dad became, I guess, a business hero in my books because he had one, he'd gone to an old business partner who had screwed him out of the business that they were in 30 years ago that I remember as a child. It, it made tyres for cars it, it, and they had this great machine that they would put a rubber strap in. The machine would heat it up and it would retread the tyre. It was incredible. I was probably eight years old. Hmm. But he got screwed out of that business and for some reason or another, on my when I was roughly 28, so I was still IBM, he went and rejoined that guy in the second business. So this guy had made millions of dollars and decided to start a finance company. I wanted my dad to be the sales guy okay. on the profit share. So my dad did that. On my 30th birthday at my surprise party, he announced to me that he'd been dumped from that business again by the same guy twice. Oh God. But Happy birthday. Happy birthday. But within a couple of weeks, he'd gone to another bank on his own, raised unsecured funding from a major bank, and he started the business up on his own. He was 60. So that was very, that, that, wow. that changed my whole mindset. So my dad had basically started a new business, gone to a bank to convince them to give him money and started from scratch and got the grant and was successful within weeks. Really? Because he just went to all his old clients and they loved him. Wow. Uh, so, and what did it do? And it's a factoring company dealing with panel beaters. So a panel beater is a small business person who doesn't know how to manage cash flow but they do know how to manage, uh, how to repair cars. It's basically a mechanic for the American yeah. audience. Yeah, uh, so, yeah, no, so, uh, they're called, they're called uh, body shops in the US. Mm -hmm. Panel beaters in Australia, body shops in the USA. And so uh, a body shop owner has got a lot of equipment, but not a lot of training in how to run a business, so they're always running short of cash. Mm -hmm. So rather than waiting for an insurance company to, you know, to take six weeks to pay them for a job they just finished, my dad would go and buy that invoice from them and pay them cash now, almost like predating a credit card. It's very mm -hmm. much how credit cards work. Give the uh, body shop owner uh, 97 cents in the dollar straight away, and then collect 100 cents in the dollar from the insurance company six weeks later. Yeah. And that's, you know, very profitable. Traditional business. factoring, but sort of risk-free because you're taking the money from the insurance company. Exactly. So it's very, all secured. Very risk-free. And so at what point did you decide to leave IBM? Well, you had your entrepreneurial seizure. At what point did you decide to leave and then you joined your dad's business? What happened? What's, what's yeah. the next step of your career journey? Well, yeah, so joining my dad's business was very weird. So I'd been going through this four-year process of being miserable because I didn't know what kind of business to go into once I decided I wanted to be an entrepreneur at IBM. I went through you know, every concept PCs had just come out, you know, software, what could I develop and all that sort of stuff. And I just discounted all of those consulting. And then, I don't know, just my dad and I sat down one day and he had a one-man business, effectively two-man. And, uh, and he, said, I, he said, you wouldn't want to join me, would you? And I said, yeah, why not? <laughs> really, it was just that short a discussion it just seemed like the right thing to do. I threw away my suits, and for the next two years, I drove around from body shop to body shop, and after the corporate world, meeting with these you know, entrepreneurs running their own businesses, hmm. who by no stretch could you call successful business people, very few of them. You're referring to the body shop owners. The, the body shop leaders, owners, yeah. just running, you know, eking out a living. Yeah. It was very liberating, it was actually great. Yeah, because they were surviving and didn't need to wear the suits. There's no corporate <laughs> bullshit, just yeah. go talk to people face to face. On a human level, is great. I really enjoyed that two-year period of my life. And was the business going well at that point? No. <laughs> no, so the thing is, you learn something about business, which is it's not enough to do the work. You actually have to understand the finances of the business. Mm -hmm. And I didn't understand the finances of the business. And my father didn't run an accounting system. He had this little red book that he wrote figures in every day. And I thought, my dad's amazing. He's got all these numbers in his head. <laughs> Turned out, no, the business was actually broke. Oh, God. And he was kind of just trying to keep it afloat, but not telling the same story we had the whole childhood, not telling me, not telling my mother, not telling the bank what was going on. Mm -hmm. So the business was actually in trouble. My dad was also sick at that time. He, <clears throat> he got cancer and he passed away within a couple of years. So around about all of that time, the business basically went under. My dad was sick. And I say that that's when my entrepreneurial journey really began mm -hmm. because I took the inspiration from my dad that he did on his 60th birthday and I took my customer list and went to another bank and I raised money from another bank unsecured and I started the business again on my own. And that's when I said I, I actually became an entrepreneur. Mm. That day when I restarted. So the business was in own. debt, it was broke. Yeah. You flipped it around, decided to make it your full time. Yep. 
And so the next step was when you started the next business, which was Shoreplan. So you had the factoring company going reasonably well. You and and then you decided to start another business in the space. Why? How? What was Mum doing at the time? What? How did you both decide to launch this new business? Uh, Mum was being the long-suffering wife that she's always been. She can tell you about that in a second. But let me tell you about the uh, why I started. It was it was simple. I I kind of realised that the finance business, <coughs> excuse me, was capital constrained. Mm -hmm. I'd always be reliant on the banks giving me more and more money, and I see a big analogy in that in dealing with a, a business that's VC funded that you're on that track that you're always going to be reliant on the next stage and you don't know if you're going to get that money. Mm -hmm. If you can't, then the business is basically finished. And so I had this realization with the factoring business, the finance company, that it was going to be constrained in how it could grow. And I felt that I needed a business that could grow bigger than just paying me an income. So it was probably akin to a lot, what you would call now a lifestyle business. Mm -hmm. That we say disparagingly, it's lifestyle. My God, this is a business that paid for our family's life. And we weren't living the high life by any stretch. I was earning something like seventy or $80,000 at IBM when I left in 1990, which is probably $150,000 now. Mm -hmm. And I capped my salary to $30,000 a year. Mm. And I did not increase my salary from 30000 for at least 10 years. So we're very reliant on Sharon's income. Mm -hmm. So that business I knew was not going to be growth. But so what I thought was, it's got a little bit of profit. Why don't I start another business that's not capital constrained? That's why I came up with the idea for Shoreplan. It was kind of related industry, kind of understood the concept of repairing cars for people, which is what we did. But I knew it was a services business. So what Shoreplan did was it basically acted as a claims department of an insurance company, but for corporate fleets. So large companies, they've got lots of drivers driving around the company cars. They crash their cars all the time but they probably don't carry insurance because they're... Oh, they're self-insuring. They're self-insuring. Mm. Because their balance sheet is bigger than most insurance companies. Okay. But they didn't have a process to handle the claims. So usually they had some real low-level manager handling the claims, mm. and they were doing a shitty job at it. And we figured we would turn that into a service, and we weren't one of the first in the world to do that. How did you come up with the idea, and why did you take the plunge to do it? And did it need opening capital? Who was your first client? Like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I came up with the idea because we were kind of doing a related business already, dealing with uh, consumers who had crashes when they weren't at fault okay. and didn't want to claim on insurance because they didn't want to pay deductible. Now, most insurance companies now build that into their policy, so that business is effectively defunct, but it taught me how to handle claims. Mm -hmm. When I say me how to handle claims, I was literally handling the first claims myself. Didn't know that. Self-taught. I used a lawyer to help me out and I slowly realised lawyers are really slow and all they do is write three or four letters and then people pay out. Mm -hmm. So I learned to copy those letters and write them for myself. Uh, so, I, you know, basically, and the lawyer was always there to help me out if a claim was too difficult. Mm -hmm. Then I hired a guy named Rob who became my claim manager doing that. And then we realised what was happening was we were going to court against company car fleets that would run in the back of our car, but somehow think that their driver's not a fault because our car stopped too suddenly. Now, anybody who's done 0.01 seconds of law knows that if somebody runs in the back of your car, you're not a fault and they are in yeah. the story. So we'd be going to court, you know, and winning nine out of 10 court cases against these corporate fleets because they had no idea how to handle their claims. So I figured you should not be winning nine out of 10 court cases. You should be winning 50% of them Mm -hmm. And you shouldn't know which 50% you're winning. That's what court's about. Okay. So that gave me the idea that there's a business in this. Hmm. Uh, I went to the USA to a trade show. We wanted to go for a holiday anyway. And so I figured going to this trade show would be a good opportunity to uh, tax deduct the trip. Sorry, tax department. And Talia and, I, Talia and I were born already? Uh, no. 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 Neither? Okay. No. Early 90s. And at the trade show, by pure fluke, I met a guy from a company who was doing exactly what I wanted to do in Philadelphia. He wasn't the owner of the company, but he gave me the owner's name. I called the owner up and said, I'm this nobody from Australia and I want to do something like what you're doing. He said, hey, Cobber, 
He used some Aussie, uh, well, he thought were Aussie uh, words, and he called me over. I went to, actually, it was Washington that day. Was it Washington? No, Philadelphia. I went to Philadelphia to see him, and we became great friends, and he basically opened his whole book to the business, and and uh, I copied the business in Australia. People are more helpful than you think. Hugely helpful. Mm. Just go talk to people. They always want to help. Yeah. Okay, so you opened the business in Australia, you got clients, it started doing kind of well. Mum was working at Telstra EDS at the time. Skip forward a few years, me and Talia were born, and then Talia and I, Talia and I were born <laughs> and failing at grammar. Yes, yes. And so you were running short plan for how many years before we moved to the US? We moved to US in 2004. I was running short plan probably for eight maybe 10 years. I think I started in roughly 96. 94? Somewhere around there. I don't know. Okay. I can't remember. It was just so, it was, that was a very stressful set of years. I, the, the, the years blur a bit. Why was it stressful? Uh, the, it was stressful, first of all, because uh, financially, n neither business was doing that well. So the small amount of profit that the finance company made I was using to fund the short plan business to get off the ground. Wow. So it's kind of like having a digital agency that's making a little bit of money and using the money to fund side hustles and try and build software products that could Yeah, because you're building tech for it as well. So that's, that was a, a critical component of the IP that you were... That was a key decision I made because I come out of the IT industry that, and this is pre-internet, don't forget, this is late 90s. The internet really wasn't a thing yet in the late 90s. Mm. And I looked at getting an agency to go build a software platform to handle our claims, which we were doing manually on manila folders, and then we moved across to a contact management system, which is a very simple database. And if mm -hmm. our clients knew that we ran a mission-critical business for, May, for a $2 billion company, was our main client in Australia, using a piece of software that I bought at a trade show for $50, <laughs> they would have had a heart attack. But they didn't know that, thankfully. Wow. Uh, but when we did end up writing our own piece of software, which is in the year 2000, because of the Y2K bug, which never eventuated, but we thought it would and some other issues, I decided to do the software in-house because I felt that by the time we exposed what we were doing to our clients, and they were corporate clients, they have all the negotiating power. They would mm. say, I want this and this and this. How could we say no? And I would go to the agency that built our core software and we're locked in. They would just jack up the pricing of, of all those changes. Yes. So that was my intuition. So we paid an awful lot of our, or in fact, all of our profit of the company rather than increasing our salaries and putting the hiring IT people. But I'm talking about, you know, a business that's making five, 20, you know, 10 grand profit a month and putting all that and more into hiring IT staff. Mm. So we ended up with three or four IT staff and we built an internet-enabled system back in the year 2000. Wow. And we had no idea what we were building because no one knew what the internet was. We just <laughs> wrote down some specs that we thought sounded logical. Mm -hmm. And what we ended up with is, this is literally like January 2000. We ended up with a bit of software that our body shops would use to upload digital photos and upload their quotes and put some key figures in would go directly into our database, hmm. which sounds so trivial now. Mm -hmm. We had to send two of my guys around Australia to go visit every single body shop we wanted to deal with. We chose 30, spend a day at each one to train them on how to use this thing called the internet, which meant we had to give them, an, we had to give them a dial-up modem. Mm -hmm. We had to sign them up to uh, Turnbull's Aussie mail. And we had to... Uh, train them on how to fill in web forms and upload photos on give them a digital camera. So people were using Polaroid cameras in those days and faxing wow. things through. So we taught every single one of our body shops how to do the internet within three months. Our transactions were all online. And our corporate clients loved it too because now we could give them a report with a hyperlink in it. They could click on a link and see photos of their vehicles being da you know, damaged and being repaired something that didn't exist in the year 2000. So, nice. so from being technologically backwards, we became probably the most advanced uh, claims shop on the planet 
running it out of Australia, which was ridiculous. So what were your ambitions and aspirations? You had a couple of office moves, you bought an office on Keong Road. You clearly had some sort of ambition or foresight or something, but what was your ambition? Uh, I could have floated the company in the year 2000. Wow. So that was kind of because it was... The tech know, bubble. Tech bubble. And I just didn't understand how could you float something that's not making a thing called profits. Yeah. So I didn't float, thankfully. Yeah. And ironically, we ended up selling the business a number of years later to a UK company that went through the same thought process and did float. And they somehow managed to survive the bubble and bought us. Oh. But that was the two thinking. But I think I was right because the, the crash came two years later and they only survived because they bought a lot of other businesses mm -hmm. that happened to make money along the way. So I think it was the right decision. Well, it was obviously hindsight the right decision, but it was simple logic. And uh, I think in business, if you apply some simple logic and just ignore the trends that are going around you, you have a far greater chance of longevity. Including the anxious trends. <laughs> Anything. <laughs> you learn to be anxious about things, but it doesn't help you. It doesn't help you. So how did the US move happen? The US move happened because I bought that book called The E-Myth from Michael Gerber that we spoke about. Mm -hmm. And so I was nine years old when we moved to the US and moved back to Australia when we were 14 after you sold Short Plan yes. to that public company. So, so that was, was four and a half years, years yeah. where we were all personally invested in the move. So this was six years before. that. The genesis of the move to the US was about six years earlier. Really? Yes. Felt sudden to me because I was nine, yeah. but I didn't know that. No, it was sudden. And the thinking was this. The business was just running, so I was a typical small business person that just goes day to day, opens up the shop, has customers, puts money in the till, at the end of the day counts the cash in the till, it's not really how our business worked, but in principle, mm. and takes you know a third out and puts it in their pocket, mm -hmm. and then puts the other two thirds, another third aside to pay the tax man, and then puts the other third aside to reinvest and grow the business. That's a smart business making a little bit of money what you do mm -hmm. and that's just what you do from day to day and you have these vague notions that one day I'm going to sell the business or whatever else uh, you know you, I had no plan I literally had no plan mm. other than keeping on growing the business so when I bought the Michael Gerber book the e-myth the e which I encourage every entrepreneur to read even though it's a little bit dated now you read it in 2003 no I read it in 98 and so the first exercise of the book said, your business is not your life, and your life isn't your business. Your business is just there to enable your life. Mm -hmm. So before you go into business, or when you're running your business, you've got to first think about what do you actually want to do with your life. Yeah, that's one of my mantras too. Well, it wasn't that's why I always mantra. wanted to systemize my business in high school, because I wanted to make sure that I could have a normal social life and go out and travel. Otherwise, I wasn't willing to run the business. Yeah, and that's the key part of the book, but that's actually... Mind you, I had no responsibilities, <laughs> but still, that was a re I had a social responsibility to myself. And school. And school. Yeah, and that book provides huge benefits because prior to reading that book, I was pulling every lever in the business, like operationally, every file over a $5,000 payout would go past my desk. And then one day, I noticed, you know, for a month or two, there were no $5,000 files. And I said, that's strange. I spoke to my ops guy. I said, why... Have I seen any five thousand dollar files? They said, "Oh, we stopped seeing those files two months ago," and I realised, "Oh, the business runs without me seeing the files," and that was the last day I touched anything operationally in any of my businesses. Mm. From that day forward, all operations were handled by my staff. Yes, which is great. The business improved because I wasn't focusing on that getting in the way. Yeah. And remember, I was the least trained person in my own business. Mm. I knew nothing about motor vehicle claims. All my staff did, so I stepped away from operation, and that was the direct result of the book because we had built systems. What the book encouraged me to think about was what I actually wanted to do with my life. And what I wanted to do with my life really was to travel. And I said travel physically, mentally and spiritually, which means I wanted to do experiment in lots of different areas of my life. And I realized that if I want to have time... What were the three? Mentally? Mentally, physically and spiritually. Okay. So mentally is, is, is be creative, think of lots of different ideas and play around with lots of different things. And one of the th ways of doing that to me was, uh, I wrote down, be a venture capitalist. What hmm. I really meant was be an angel investor, but I didn't know the terminology. What I wanted to do was invest in roughly 10 businesses. Okay. And I calculated how much I wanted to put in financially. So this is in 98. Yeah. I didn't become an angel investor for another 
10 years. Mm. But I knew then that something I wanted to do. Okay. So that was a financial number I had on a spreadsheet that I need $500,000 so I could become an angel investor and invest 50,000 in 10 startups mm. or businesses. I didn't even know what a startup was in those days. And then traveling physically is logical. I want to do what we're doing. We're doing this uh, interview in a hotel room in San Diego. Mm -hmm. I want the opportunity and I wanted it then to be able to hop on a plane and go on two days notice and visit my son in the USA, which is exactly what we did. You can't do those if you're working in the business full time. Yeah. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. So I realized that what I would need is a certain amount of money and I would need a certain amount of time. And both those things meant I couldn't be running a business. So it meant that I would need to sell my business and the timeline I gave myself was five years and I needed to sell it for at least $5 million mm -hmm. so I could fund a $200,000 a year lifestyle, okay. which was my mathematics. Yeah, it's so 4% rule or something. Yeah, 5%, yeah. 4% rule. Yeah. So I basically wanted roughly 200 grand a year, which sounds like a lot of money to most people who are young, who don't have families, mm -hmm. but, but you know, it's not a lot if you want to travel business class and put your kids through school and you know, live in a reasonable house and drive reasonable cars. After taxes, yeah. <laughs> and after tax on top of it. So that was the number I came up with. And then I did a backward analysis on what my business was worth. And I realized the only place I was gonna get $5 million was for selling my business in five years time. And it would need to generate about a million dollars a year profit. I was currently generating close to zero mm -hmm. after expenses and all that sort of stuff. And I worked out that I would need the top thousand corporates in Australia to be my client in order to generate that sort of money because I just did a model, a simple financial model. Wow. And I currently had five. Okay. <laughs> so I figured that wasn't going to happen. Australia was just too small a market. Okay. And that's what triggered us to start the process of thinking about going overseas. Well, so it was a six year process. You thought about it. Well, it wasn't a six year process because the plan was actually to become an insurance company first. Okay. Stay in Australia, become an insurance company. Yeah. We had all the processes. We could become a corporate insurance company. I looked at uh, the balance sheets of some smaller insurance companies. I knew exactly what size I needed to be. It was very achievable. Mm -hmm. And then uh, came the crash at the end of, I can't remember which crash it was, but it was around about 2000 something or other. And a major insurance company in Australia went broke. Mm -hmm. And APRA, which is the insurance company, uh, um, you know, organization that oversees them, raise the capital amount that you need to start an insurance company from $1 million, which I thought I could raise somehow, mm -hmm. to $7 million, okay. which I could never even contemplate yeah. raising. So that killed the insurance company. So that was out. Idea. And then, yeah. so le lease plan or whatever came in. You decided you wanted to move to the US? No, I just decided, the, then, the, then I decided if I can't become an insurance company, then all I could do is replicate my business in a larger market. Mm -hmm. I decided it takes so long to start my business and grow it. So I had five or six clients over five years. I didn't want to start that process in another country. Okay. So I decided I would try and find joint ventures with the types of organizations that already had the clients I want. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, those, I decided that those would be leasing companies, car leasing companies, mm -hmm. or roadside assistance companies, anybody that was dealing with large fleets of clients. So uh, I didn't know where that would be. I, f I figured it would be the US or the UK or Europe, somewhere like that. So we did a world tour. Mm -hmm. Went around the world. I went to visit my clients, US. Oh, I had a partnership with a company called Lease Plan in Australia. They were my major clients. Oh, okay. So I went to visit them in uh, their operations center in Chicago, took a look at it and expected to see world's best practice. And instead I saw what my business looked like before I put my internet software in mm -hmm. and thought this business can't be making money. It was much bigger than mine, but it couldn't possibly be making any money. And uh, I started a dialogue process with them. I also went to the UK and I could have bought, again, I did a tour of, uh, I think it was the Royal Automobile Club of the UK. Mm -hmm. So they offered as a service claims management for corporate fleets and you would think it would be amazing. This is a Royal Automobile Club of the UK. I walked around and looked at it, no internet. And I knew they couldn't be making money because I knew my business was not scalable on labor alone. Mm. You have to have... It's cool when you look at the competitors and they're not working on anything that you're working on. It kind of gives you extra motivation. Extra. Or so, delusion. <laughs> so they were looking to sell that part of their business. And I could have bought it for a song. I knew I could turn it around. And I also started a dialogue with Lease Plan in the USA 
and both those conversations were coming to fruition and we went through a discussion being an entrepreneur I wanted to do both mm -hmm. and I really thought no I can't possibly contemplate going backwards and forwards from the UK to the US to the UK so we settled on doing a deal in the USA okay so you got the joint venture deal and so then we decided to all move to the US yep mum what was your reaction what did we do at that point and how what was it like to move a whole family to the US um, to Chicago what was my reaction well we'd been talking about it for a long time and I knew that dad, your dad wanted to succeed and he had a big goal in mind so I felt that the intentions were good um, it wasn't going to be a waste of time it was worth having a go and that to hold him back from pursuing this opportunity would be the wrong move that it was an opportunity that he would regret if we didn't follow through mm. so as far as I was concerned it was something we should do um, it was very stressful though uh, leaving and, uh, and and Adrian was very stressed at work because he was managing his business in Melbourne and setting up a business in the United States um, and there was a lot of cultural kickback with the, the Australian coming to America showing them how to do their work so he was having issues in the states and he was trying to ensure that the business in Melbourne would continue to run without him and even though he'd done the e-myth he still needed to employ people and that was a headache as well um, to employ people to replace him so he was really stressed so I felt like I was moving the family on my own essentially and that was pretty it was a very stressful time mm. but at the end of the day when we got there I think the attitude was it was an adventure mm -hmm. And I treated it like that, and it was really it was a, a fantastic experience. Once we got there, it was fantastic. And how do you think that? Well, hold on. So I'll, I'll finish this story. So we moved to the U.S. Um, we decided after four and a half years to move back to Australia because you ended up selling the company. Is, is there anything there that you want to share? Or was it like that? Just I mean, that's a big process in itself, but that's probably a story for another time. Um, but yeah, so you, you got the joint venture to a certain level of success, sold it. We then decided to move back to Australia. Um, how do you think that, well, we, we came back to Australia in a different sort of financial situation. I say I'm really lucky because I grew up probably lower middle class and ended up you know, in the kind of higher class realm, at, at least lifestyle wise as a family. But, how do you think that that impacted, for me that inspired me, I can tell you how it impacted me um, and I saw the whole entrepreneurial journey but while being grateful the whole time because I remember the days of the stress and being in Australia and not having anything really, like we would go out for dinner once every two weeks kind of things, you know, that type of family which is fine. But how do you think that your success shaped your kids and the way that you brought up your kids? And what are some values that you try to imbue on us? Well, first of all, let's just talk about that, that change in lifestyle. It's actually very sudden. And the reason for that is prior to moving to the US, Sharon was a breadwinner. So she was earning roughly twice what I was taking home from the business. Sure, the business would pay for perks like motor cars and some of those sorts of things. So I don't think that we struggled greatly in Australia financially in that we had enough money to go and buy a house and renovate a house, but it was small. Uh, the issue was that we both had to work. We both had to work very hard and juggle kids picking up, delivering and, and also, which I, I don't know if you're old enough to remember, but you know, like we were rushing out to pick up from aftercare at school and, and Talia, your sister. I remember being like in aftercare and that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. But when we moved to the US, because it was a joint venture, and I was 51% and the other corporate partner was 49%, it all of a sudden made sense not to take the least amount of the money you can from the business and put it in your pocket, which is what every normal business person does, but it made sense to take the most amount of money out of the business off the top mm -hmm. because my joint venture partner was paying 50, effectively 50% of it with their encouragement. So the minute we arrived in the USA, we increased our salary from 50000 a year up to 250000 a year and mum stopped work because we agreed that in a new country it was too hard for both of us to be working and try and make our time away. Mm. So our life actually changed 
like on so well, many actually didn't stop working you shifted everything to um to volunteer work <laughs> yeah. yeah that became a big focus of yours which you still continue today on a very almost full-time basis yeah <laughs> yeah that's true um no but I, it, it, that's very different having to be at work and go through stress-wise yes. yes but you're still you know you're giving you're choosing to give your time i just wanted to yeah. mention that <laughs> okay thanks yes um more so now you've laid on a lot more volunteer work since even you were doing a lot in america but a lot more since we came back to australia fair enough you're much closer to full-time in volunteer now yeah than we were there well the kids are growing up now yeah yeah so in terms of how you like what are some philosophies that you used i mean whether on purpose or not to raise us as kids and how did that change after this um new financial situation Anything um, come to I, mind? I think that... Um, like you've trained us to be very self-sufficient without expectations or needs, you know? Yeah, you're both very independent, yeah. very capable, um, very focused, mm. both of you are. Um, I think when you travel to a different country and you don't know anybody, uh, the four of us became a family unit. We had to help each other get through it. I think that that was... Uh, Remember that, we used to say we're a team. We're a team. Mm. And I think that that was a very worthwhile exercise. But also, um, I think not coming from money and then being fortunate enough to have has taught you the value of money and the appreciation of it, but it doesn't define you. Mm. Um, and um, I'd like to think that you've learned to give back too. I know you have. Um, uh, if you're in a fortunate position. Yeah, well, either time or money or both. Yes. I think there's different ways of giving back. Yes but not to take it for granted. No. And I don't think that our, even though we live a nicer sort of a lifestyle, on the face of it, I think essentially we're the same people. I don't think we've changed at all. No, that's very true. Yeah. You haven't changed. Yeah. I also remember you talking on a podcast a while ago and I was glad that to see you or to hear you articulate that on the entrepreneur, entrepreneurial side, it's, it's normal for people who've got entrepreneurial appearance that they say, oh yeah, your son is entrepreneurial because he takes after you. And I say the fact is actually, no, I think quite the reverse. Yes, you grew up in an entrepreneurial house, saw me being entrepreneurial. I would listen to your phone calls. <laughs> You'd listen to my phone calls. But aside from you know, that sort of thing, you became an entrepreneur way, way earlier than I ever did. I took till I became 30 to become an entrepreneur and I took the easy way out and joined my father's business. Mm -hmm. And then circumstances almost forced me into becoming an entrepreneur you started when you were 12 mm -hmm. and the second thing that I mean partially is because I knew it was possible I knew it was an option whereas you probably didn't until your dad started this business yeah, you're probably my... even scared of it because he failed yeah maybe but my, as, I, as I say but my dad had been in and out of businesses all the time so I always knew it was an option that was available okay so I think you either have it in you or don't and the second thing was that that I never wanted to be the soccer dad and by that I mean there are parents who wish they could have been great soccer players. And so when their kids go to school, they encourage them to do soccer. And then they take them to soccer on the weekends and overly encourage their kids to do it. And their kids may not want to play soccer, but the parents almost push them into it. I didn't want to be that soccer dad for you, but for entrepreneurialism. So one of the things that I made a decision on very early on was to never offer advice to you or, or even almost encouragement to be an entrepreneur but to sit back and wait for you to ask me a question mm. and then if you ask me a question I would always answer you mm. as fully as I could and try not to embellish with extra information and fortunately I'm fortunate that I think you have asked me a lot of questions yeah so we've had that dialogue <laughs> but even yesterday personal finance advice the idea of having a cash buffer and that's all you should really care about. But there you go, there's another example. So you know, everyone I think by now knows that personal finance is my second major passion. That's my next question. <laughs> yeah, most of, I don't think that most of my family knows all of my ideas because I don't want to push them down on you guys. Mm. I just hope that when I write the book that you guys read it. <laughs> well, come on, <laughs> better get writing. So mum spent a lot of time doing volunteer work. Mm -hmm. um, Dad spent a lot of time doing your angel investing, which is always a dream of yours. Meanwhile, you've actually both seen the startup um, ecosystem in Australia change over the last 
eight years, whether it be the barbecues that we've had at our house or, you know, going to Angel Cube events, which was Dad's accelerator program, or meeting people like Dave McClure, who invited me to 500 startups in the US. Like, just seeing how it's become much more global and improve locally as well. You actually had an impact on the ecosystem. Dad's been called the godfather of the Melbourne startup industry, <laughs> which I like. But Mum, you've supported that as well. Um, Dad could have retired and done nothing. And now Dad's working on this luggage, which I'm sitting in front of. <laughs> Glide luggage, which everyone in the community is waiting to see. But what, what was Angel Cube and what was its impact? Um, yeah. So Angel Cube was, okay, so Angel Cube came directly out of that goal of mine, which was to uh, become an angel investor and invest money in tech startups. And the reason why I decided to do that was I wanted to have fun, but lose less money. And so I worked out that tech startups were cheaper than traditional businesses. Okay. So if I wanted to back a coffee shop, it'd be $100,000 for the lease, another hundred grand for the fit out. And we had a couple of experiments like with iced coffee. I don't know if you remember that iced coffee one's one mm -hmm. of my most expensive failures. So it just reinforces uh, the startup, startup scene. So then I figured I could put $50,000 into a tech startup and that would cap my losses at yeah. 50 grand. I was never thinking about how much money they could make. <laughs> I was always thinking about how to limit my losses. And, uh, and I had, I had uh, invested in a couple of tech startups. In fact, tried to build a couple of my own before we left the USA. I don't know, no, I don't know if you remember uh, Joel and uh, what's the other guy? Yeah, Wyatt. Wyatt, there you go. Uh, I approached them to start a, com a company called Obooth. And I'm pleased to say I've just sold the domain name finally. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that was going to be like a social network and eBay and Facebook and three things combined. And we actually built the software in Ruby on Rails. I thought I was very pleased with myself that I'd build a software platform in Ruby on Rails years before most people did. Mm -hmm. And we never launched it. And so, because uh, I had no idea how to launch a startup. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then we ended up building another one. I don't know why we built another one. If we had launched <laughs> launched the first one called College Blurbs. Oh, yeah, really. Domain name still available, College Blurbs. <laughs> I'm shaking your head, rolling your eyes. <laughs> and we built that one. And again, I realized I had no idea how to launch a startup, so we shelved that one. Uh, but uh, we came back to Australia and uh, around about 2011, I decided to find a marketing person who knew how to market startups, because that's what I was missing. Yeah. And I spoke to that person about what I had in mind. Let's launch a few startups. And he said, no, 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 there's this thing called Y Combinator. Why don't you go look at that? So I did. And I thought, wow, you can actually raise a fund and have just as much fun investing in startups, <laughs> yeah. but use other people's money. Mm. That was genius. Now I didn't have to spend 500 grand of my own money. Mm -hmm. I could just put 100,000 in and then raise 500,000 from other people. And that's what we did. Mm, that's cool. And that had a huge impact on the ecosystem. And you've also personally invested in a unicorn. I have which helped you recover from a massive failure. Correct. <laughs> so I guess it all just works out yeah, <laughs> sometimes. I, I've realized that when it comes to money that there's no such thing as just an upward trajectory or anything in your life. There's no such thing as just an upward trajectory. That's what we all want. We all want a curve that goes from you know, left to right and goes upwards. Mm -hmm. It doesn't. If you look at the micro scale, it goes up, down, up, down, up, down, and if you're going to take the ups, you have to be prepared to accept the downs. And you were prepared to accept the downs. You moved to the US with no expectations, really. You had an opportunity and a partnership, but... It still hurts when your accountant steals money from you. Yeah, that happened as well. Yeah, <laughs> that happened as well. Yeah. Well, yeah, the, the accountant stealing money was the one that was recovered by the unicorn investment. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's called diversification. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and embezzlement. Yeah. Um, any parting philosophies or beliefs? Um, probably uh, it's, it, it's about the journey, not the destination. Mm. So we didn't know we were going to be successful in the States, but it was worth a try. So yeah, it's about the journey. Having said all of that, I'm risk averse. So I'm a very... You say you're risk averse, but then you took a big risk. We, had, we didn't have a lot to lose though. So that's not... It was but an a lot opportunity. of people have perceived risks. That's true. Uh, well, no, I measure the risk and decide whether I'm happy with it. So I think I'm a good 
counterbalance to Adrian. I was going to say, yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's about the two. Because when Dad got your blessing, you probably had a lot of confidence to go and do it because of your risk aversion. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So I'd like to think I'm supportive, but I'm also risk averse. Yeah. Mm. I think you have to have a personal goal, uh, which is hard when you're young. So when you're in your 20s, I think it's very hard to have a, have a life goal because uh, your idea, you know, let's say, let's say you're in your situation, you're in your 20s, you're single, you're traveling, you actually don't need a lot of money to do what you want to do. So you can have a very flexible life or you can have a very busy life. It's almost like a choice mm -hmm. uh, that you can do. When you're in your 30s and your 40s, you start to have children, finances become a much bigger issue and I know that, for example, that the number one issue for millennials now, who are starting to get into their 30s and 40s, the older millennials, is will I have enough money to retire on? Now that's, wow. You know, we're not talking about having experiences anymore. Yeah, you said that's the number one issue of millennials. Yep. Is being scared of not having enough money to retire on, which is so counterintuitive because you just see millennials not even caring about their finances. Exactly, because we're gonna have experiences, we're gonna have this, we're not gonna buy yeah. a lot, but the reality is, that when you start to have kids and build a lifestyle, you've got you know debts and you've got uh, expenses, you've got commitments, and commitments require funding. And so there's a comes a certain age, I think, when you have to start thinking about what you really want to do with your life, when you want to do it, how much money is going to take, and can you be working while you're doing it or not? And I think that that's really important to put that up there on the table, and then everything you do from a work point of view should be designed to get you to that point. That's just being practical. Which is in line with the advice that you gave me two days ago, which was to not care about how much you've got invested or whatever, it's about having the cash buffer because the cash buffer actually get, it helps you focus on your next goal, which for me is to continue being an entrepreneur and keep being creative for as long as I can. So even if my current business fails, I don't have to worry because I've got a cash buffer saved and my goal can be increase the cash buffer. It doesn't need to be that I have this multi-million dollar exit to retire on. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, you, you don't need a multi-million dollar exit to retire on because you've got no expenses. Mm. One day you will. Yes. And one day hopefully you'll have the multi-million dollars to retire on, but it's not an issue you have to have focused in your head today. Mm. So I think you have to be very cognizant of what stage you are in life, how much runway you've got ahead of you, and plan accordingly. Obviously, you can't leave all your financial planning till you're 60 when you've got two more years of working life. Mm -hmm. You've got to start doing it when you're young, but you don't have to be so invested in, you have to be so invested in the results every day. There's a good, I play, I play poker, and, I, and poker teaches you an awful lot about business and about life, because you get good runs, you get bad runs, you get skill, you get highs and you get lows. And one of the key tenets of playing poker is not to be results oriented because luck has an effect in the result. Mm. But luck doesn't have an effect in the input you put into the result. I wrote a blog post on it, I, why I try to at least, why I try to count life's um, opportunities instead of the wins. Because each opportunity represents a chance at winning, but there's so much not necessarily in your control, market forces, um, and luck <laughs> that you can't count on. So the more opportunities you can create for yourself, that's what we should strive to count. Yeah, I think. the inputs are in your control much more than the outputs. Yeah. So focus on what you're putting in and what levers you can pull mm. and don't focus so much on the output. And the other corollary to that is we have so much angst in our lives because at some point you walk down the road and you find yourself in front of two doors. And you don't know whether to take the left door or the right door. It comes when choosing a course at university. Mm -hmm. It comes when choosing a, a, you know, two jobs and you choose one job over another job, which in my day was common. Nowadays, you're lucky to get one door in front of you with a job. But what is it? You, know, you go down life and there's two doors in front of you and you get so much angst about which door to choose. I say just go with your gut and choose a door. Mm -hmm. Probably doesn't even matter. Because when you go through that door, whichever door you chose, inevitably, there'll be two more doors soon behind that. Yeah. And if you've got a general idea about where you want to go in life, like if you've really got that long-term understanding about what you're actually trying to achieve one day, without a timeline on it, without an exact amount, just a general understanding, 
you'll eventually choose almost the right set of doors that will take you somewhere close to that. Your, your, your route may be more or less circuitous, but you'll get there. If you've got no destination in mind, then any door, it doesn't matter which door you choose anyway, yeah. because you'll end up anywhere. Yeah. So don't get so hung up about you know, each of those little decisions. Mm. Thank you. Thanks for coming to San Diego. <laughs> okay, bye. <laughs>